everyone, welcome to episode 34 of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke, and on this episode I had the pleasure in interviewing Greg Cook. Greg Cook is the creator of the Functional Movement Screen and the Selective Functional Movement Assessment, but on this show me and Greg just mainly focused on the Functional Movement Screen. What we wanted to do on this episode was to give Gray a platform to answer many of the criticisms that people have about the Functional Movement Screen. And the majority of these criticisms are based off very false assumptions. So Gray answered a lot of these criticisms that are based off these false assumptions throughout the show. Now a lot of these criticisms and questions about the Functional Movement Screen were brought up in the episode that I did with Vern Gambetta. So Gray answers a lot of the questions and criticisms that Vern brought up on that episode. Just one thing I want to say, guys, is that the audio throughout this interview just kind of fades in and out at times. Gray was driving at the time of this interview, and with Gray being in America and me being here in Dublin, Ireland, that just happens sometimes. But for the most part, you can hear Gray pretty clearly. This was a really, really good interview, guys, and I hope you really, really enjoyed the show. Okay, Mr. Gray Cook, um, as with all my guests, it's a pleasure and honour to have you on my podcast, but particularly with you, Gray, you've been an absolutely massive influence on me as a strength coach a physical therapist uh your contribution to my knowledge is you know you'll, you'll actually you'll never know how much you've you've helped me as an individual but uh it really is a true honor to have you on the podcast just for any of the listeners which won't be many as i'd imagine just fill us in on your background uh, well i uh i went to the university of miami and uh right after i graduated my undergraduate degree and uh, had an opportunity to go to one of the best physical therapy schools in the country. The way I prepared myself for that was in a conventional sort of sports medicine, athletic training curriculum. Um, all, all the way through college, I, I did everything from personal training to bartending and realized that uh, I probably learned more about psychology and teaching people in both those professions than I did any of my undergrad uh, classes. But... Uh, I always knew I wanted to have one foot in, in rehabilitation and one foot in performance enhancement. And there never was a clear line there because I thought to be a responsible therapist, I had to embrace the lifestyle that I was rehabilitating somebody for. And to be a good strength coach, I had to realize that people will never be completely injury-free. So I had to, as a strength coach, I had to be ever vigilant of risk and injury and proper technique and early warning signs and, and, and potential problems don't put fitness on dysfunction. And as a rehabilitation guy, I had to totally embrace the, the kind of time constraints that strength coaches have and performance people have. You can't spend 38 minutes on prep. It's just not, not, not possible. So, you know, this, this conflict that, that I've tried to help is a conflict that's been with inside me. I'm both a strength coach and a physical therapist. I understand that there's a time to get after it and a time to train, and there's also a time when training blindly can actually send you back or cost you time. And uh, so, you know, I think that my, my training before Miami probably made me a, a pretty good strength coach, and my training at Miami got me ready for therapy. And uh, I spent the you know, since 1990, trying to uh, put those two things together. And it hit me about five years after physical therapy that instead of trying to come up with the world's best rehabilitation program or world's best uh, movement preparation program or strength conditioning program, 
wouldn't it make more sense if I developed some metrics or some tests that told us when we were lacking in our products and our programming and our rehabilitation and our philosophy? Because, you know, what's a speed coach without a stopwatch? You, you, you don't know how good a speed coach you are until you have that stopwatch in your hand to both set a baseline and then demonstrate the improvement and also own it if you don't improve someone and, and go back and become a better coach and realize that you're not always right. So, you know, I built these metrics, the movement screen, the selective functional movement assessment. I've embraced things like the Y balance test because first and foremost, they tell me when I'm not doing a good job and I want to be the first one on the case to know that. So I realized that my contribution, I should probably strive to find a metric or a test that helps us put in some type of organized platform all of the work and results that we try to embrace. At some point, quit trying to build a better program. Analyze what you've already done. Gray, who, who would you say have been your biggest influences? One question I've always wanted to ask you was how did you come up with these seven tests for the function movement screen and how did you develop the SFMA and you know, what sort of principles guided you to develop these systems? Well, you know, that's, that's, that's a, a broad question. The one thing that really made me think outside the box as a strength coach was the early work of Vern Gambetta saying, you know, a lot of the things you're doing aren't making you functional because you're doing them and look, you're not functional. And, and, you know, I, I really, the message resonated with me because, you know, I come from a track and field background. I was also a football player, but I was a business thrower. And the fact that track and field didn't get, uh, didn't get lost in the weight room. Many, many people had gotten lost in the weight room trying to build better football players. And sometimes you got to realize a football player uh, is built on the field doing football-specific drills. We know want that extra conditioning that the weight room can give us, but sometimes it becomes too much about the weight room and not enough about the sport. That hasn't happened so much in track and field. And Vern's early work with the NSCA and the, the videotapes, the, the VHS tapes, okay, that, that I watched with Vern on them, really helped me become a coach, not just a weightlifting coach. Um, I think Gary Gray. You know, when I first saw the, the, the star excursion test, the star balance test, when you stand in one place and reach in all these different directions with the other foot, I said to myself, that's brilliant. That's, a, that's first of all, a left-right comparison. That is a, um, it, is, it is highly functional because it's dealing with a single leg, and it's something that all of us can adapt. The drawbacks I saw with the test were there's a way that you can get a good score on that test and still move poorly. And so it wasn't as self-limiting as I'd like it to be. And uh, secondly, I was worried about how long the test took. Well, sure enough, later research said that Gary had an amazing concept, but we were just reaching in too many directions. Um, Phil Plisky turned those into three directions and said, you know, the big problem with reaching in the other directions is it's highly functional but then you ruin the test because fatigue plays a factor. So we, we want to embrace that, which is functional, but we want a reliable, reproducible, valid test. So Gary had an idea of a functional gauntlet. We just had to go and have that vetted in research that turned into 
education and, and, and research background got us that. Lastly, in physical therapy, I realized that the central nervous system is in many cases the driving factor in our poor movement patterns. And many of the exercises that we come up with are kinesiologically correct. We're working on the glute medius to improve single leg stance, but what if the glute is already strong enough and single leg stance is still bad? What are some reasons that you might be standing on one leg poorly? Ankle mobility, proprioception, pelvic alignment, spinal alignment, all these other things. When I started looking at you know the functional testing from Gary Gray, functional training from Vern uh, Gambetta, and then I got into physical therapy school and realized that we all learn the book through patterns, not through isolated exercise, and that there's something really cool in the developmental patterns of trials. Isolation does happen. We isolate the glutes and half kneeling, not by a baby obsessing over bridging or doing single leg deadlifts. The glutes are isolated from a stability standpoint in, in single, uh, single limb kneeling or half kneeling. And so in the developmental sequence I learned in physical therapy school, we use those things when somebody's had a brain injury or a stroke, but we don't use that technology in normal orthopedic sports programming. And so I said, you know, if I were to build a functional movement screen, it can't be sports specific. It's got to be movement pattern specific, and it's got to have intentional redundancy built in because we don't just look at hip extension one way. We look at like four different ways, open chain, closed chain, symmetrical, asymmetrical. So in this little movement screen we develop, you will find, you know, my physical therapy background, the, the functional background that I think all strength conditioning people ought to be there, the practical background. And, and a lot of people see the movement screen and some people look down their nose and think it's too simple. And that's where I'd say, there's, there's a lot of technology here. I've made it simple to promote both reliability, acceptance, and efficiency. I could easily make it more complex, but it would never make it to the places where it needs to be. So it takes quite a bit of brain work and logic to create a test that is reliable and user-friendly and, and yields uh, an efficient result. And so... There, there are many layers to that work, and, and I try to just scratch on a few, but functional training is only good if we've got a valid functional testing platform that tells us when it's needed and when it's when it's sufficient. That's yeah, great stuff. I mean, the one thing I, I always got away from your work was you just seem to make the concepts much easier. Like, if I read Carl Levitz or anything from the Prague before I understood principles of the functional movement screen i just couldn't wrap i was like what what is fee for i don't you know i don't get it but then like when you spoke about you know stabilizers mobility motor control versus stability and you talk about and then you broke down the feed forward mechanism it just made it so much more clear now when i read levitt's work i can understand it better because you broke it down that bit more simpler so i just always really wanted to say that that you know your perspective made me understand kind of more difficult things well the, the credit i got to give there is to my father my father became a a Methodist minister in uh, 1975 when I was 10 years old and watched my father, who was basically a, a businessman, go through his theological training and, and become a minister. And he was always a different 
you would always tell a story that was completely clear, but made you think about things in a different way or at a deeper level. And, and so, you know, from the time I'm 10 to the time I leave home and go to college, my dad sort of did the same thing that Mark Twain did. He would take a very philosophical, highly debated, highly volatile topic and reduce it to its its most fundamental and we talk about it. And I did that this weekend when we were in San Francisco. I made I made my group talk about mobility, motor control, and movement, showing them that they weren't independent topics. You can't even test motor control if mobility is compromised because stiffness isn't stability. As a matter of fact, the, the lack of mobility makes it impossible for you to test motor control because motor control is instantaneous specific stability uh, and people who, who go forth and write on stabilization training or ways to make that body part stable and don't make it clear in the front of that chapter and say listen we're not going to talk about lumbar stability and isolation if the T-spine is stiff and if the hips don't move well don't read this because you're going to try to make a spine stable what it is obliged obligated to compensate because you have you have identified one problem without identifying the other so i refuse to talk about motor control ability isn't at least adequate and i refuse to talk about movement patterns if motor control is adequate and then i find if we talk about these and at least manage the minimums in each topic then a discussion about movement is very logical and we know when we're asking an inappropriate question of the philosophy. Great. You, you mentioned Vering and Beta earlier on, and you know I suppose this podcast, in a way, is, is a bit of a response to, to some of the criticisms that were brought up in my interview with Vern. Um, the first one I just want to discuss is he, he, he seems critical of the functional movement screen, but yet he's a proponent of the physical company assessment by Kelvin Giles. And from my perspective, they are both systems that you know, seem to say the same thing. They seem to have the same principles. So for me, you know, movement quality for movement quantity and don't put strength and conditioning on top of dysfunctional movement. So my question would be there, what's the difference? I mean, what, why do you think Vern is a proponent of one and, and not of the other? I would, I would think if, if uh, I doubt this will ever happen just because of our schedules, but if Vern and I had a chance to sit down over an iced tea or a beer, he can pick the beverage and just talk for an afternoon I think he would find that that my intentions with the movement screen are are probably as pure as his intentions. I think we both want to make the world a better place. And I would tell Vern, starting off with, don't look at the movement screen. Don't invest yourself in the movement screen. Go to the, the back of the movement book, to chapter 15. I won't make you read anything that's going to waste your time. Read the 10 principles that I laid out at the back of the movement book. If you disagree with the order, hierarchy, or the intent of any of those 10 principles, then we don't have the same goals or intentions, and it's okay for us to disagree. If, however, that you do agree with those principles, then what you need to understand is if you look deep and hard, the functional movement the Y balance test, the selective functional movement assessment, all the metrics I've laid out have been specifically laid out to honor those principles, not to not to make me famous or or 
you don't understand something, uh, you may not want to say something that you could, uh, you know, you might want to take back later. So I think if he, if he had any investment at all in our principles and in the fundamental intent of the movement screen, he would see that most of the exercise practices that he has recommended would be the movement screen would basically support most of the programming Vern has committed himself to, meaning I, I tried to build a test that proved that many of Vern's suggestions were right. At the time Vern made those suggestions, there was no proof. There was just intuition, wisdom, common sense saying, come on, guys, you do realize a football player is more than a – so all I tried to do was create a test that would, would really prove that. But at the same time, I will say this. I'm a strength coach, and I do think it's important to bend over and pick up heavy shit every now and then, and sometimes we can take the functional message. When somebody's functional off, it is time to get faster, it is time to get stronger, and it is time to strength train, but it's not okay for strength training to hurt movement quality. And so I have to argue for both. I've got to argue for the, for the strength coaches that don't want us to the, the essence of really making somebody strong, but we should never sacrifice function in, in the pursuit of that unless specialization is what you're trying to get a gold medal for. And then my, my message is go specialize. Just realize it's not going to be a balanced platform, and you're going to have to, you're going to, have to be responsible for that imbalance in training. Just to another point that Vern made, he, he said that Shirley Sarman influenced the functional movement screen. Now, I, I never heard Shirley Sarman having a direct influence in the functional movement screen. So just what, what is your response to that, uh, um, Gray? Um, well, first of all, uh, I don't know if Shirley Sarman uh, directly, um, how can I say, um, uh, influenced the movement screen, but Shirley Sarman definitely influenced Gray Cook. I've, I've at Shirley Sarman workshops, and the one thing that I probably did well is Shirley told us to step back a little bit, not just look at one body part, but look at movement, and she was also one of the first in saying, let's look at the pattern that produced pain, okay? And so she's had, you know, this pattern produces pain and this one not so much. But I feel that that only got us halfway there. If you look at the work with the thing that I think gets overlooked in physical rehabilitation, not the painful pattern. We all are pretty good at figuring that out. Shirley was pleading that we become way more organized. But what I tried to do at the May is like what Syriax tried to do with selective tissue tension testing. We have, you know, functional... Not Functional pain, dysfunctional painful, dysfunctional non-painful, those are the only four outcomes that a movement pattern could be. And what the SFMA requires us to do is we have to have a baseline for function. We can't arbitrarily say, well, you know, I think uh, 50-year-olds should be able to touch their toes, but 60-year-olds, no, not. That's, that's an arbitrary statement. You either are supporting movement or you're not. So what we had to step further and said, don't just attack the pattern, dysfunctional pattern. Because let me give you a scenario. This athlete has low back pain. They can't touch their toes. You can't just assume that 
flexibility is why they have low back pain, that could be a lot of, you know, muscle tone or, or, or pain driving that. What if you did an entire movement appraisal and found also no ability for stable single leg stance on the right leg? Now, it doesn't cause pain. They just got serious dysfunction when you tell them to stand on the right They're such a good athlete, you don't see a deviation in their running stride. You only see the problem when you slow them down and make the muscles. I pretty much think this athlete is going to get that forward-bending pain dress. The dysfunctional single leg is going to be largely overlooked. Could be a driver. I won't debate you whether it's a driver or not. Neither of us can answer that question until we take shaky single leg stance off. Is it the problem? So I'm not saying it is or is not. I'm saying you can't answer the question until you remove as much as you can the dysfunctional movement that away from the parent and then go revisit and see what changed and what didn't change. And so surely just like Yonda and, and just like a lot of contemporaries, and I said this in, in the movement book, they're telling us, look at the patterns. But all I try to do is define the patterns and put them in categories just trying to put the movement screen, not so much a movement measurement test as it is a movement categorization test. What category and what ones are you proficient in? And then let's try to let's try to compartmentalize the problem. Okay, Gray, another another thing brought up in the interview with uh, Vern, this one actually made me laugh because this is the complete antithesis to what Gray Cook means to me. He says, Gray Cook is a physiotherapist who only looks at joints and muscles. <laughs> so, I, but my, my response to that, I didn't actually say this to him at the time, but my response to that would be, Gray would always tell us, look at patterns. Gray says it a thousand times, look at the pattern. Gray is all about moving patterns and not muscles. So to me, this is a completely just incorrect statement to make. What what would you say to Vern? Uh, yeah, it's just it's just a lack of understanding where my work is pointing. Uh, in the back of the movement book, I, I have an appendix called the jump study. I did a vertical leap study when I was at University of Miami, seeing how quickly we could influence vertical leap reaction time and power. And it was an aha moment for me realizing that if you work on muscles and joints, there's no guarantee you'll change the pattern. And if you change the pattern effectively, then somehow you did have a positive influence on the muscles and joints that support that pattern. So I've always said, you know, and I know you know this, we, we used to identify how many impairments you have, flexibility problem here, joint mobility problem here, weakness there, poor stability over there. We used to stack up your impairments and try to predict how you would function. Well, why don't we just watch you? And if you function above a cut, a, a standard acceptable cut, let's go worry about something else. And if the function is below the cut, then let's work backward through those things that could impair movement and systematically and logically dissect those things. So, yeah, that's, that's just burn. Um, probably, I would. here's what I would probably say. I, I'm not going to... Um, cut cut Vern's out, legs out from under. I think Vern is a very smart person. I do think Vern is going through a very cranky uh, phase of his life. I hope before that life ends, I hope he will um, probably not be. I don't. I don't want Vern's last 
if I start doing that, somebody stops me from doing that. But he's got way too much, too many positive things in his work but to finish his life uh, throwing stones instead of building walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, but but I think what Vern has done is Vern probably trusts a few different people, and he those people if those people misinterpret my work and he values their opinion, then he's got no shot at understanding uh, the, the breadth of the work or the or the the change I hope it will evoke. Um, but I do know that, that you know there's there's quite a few people out there trying to change the face of training with better programming. And I had this logical dilemma early in my career. You will never you will never go to somebody who programs for a living and, and, and express to them how you can do it better than them. All you can really is set up metrics that show people when they're deficient, you know, and, and so I realized I can't, I can't get into an exercise programming debate with anybody who is in my peer group. All we can do is basically say, this is what I do, this is what you do, let's Let's run it through the metrics and see who does best. Isn't that the way we play sports? Mm-hmm. You think you're good. I think my team's good. We get on a level playing field with honest officials, hopefully, and we say, you won. And if, if one team consistently wins at some time, you must turn around and say, they must be doing everything better. And just you just got to say it. I mean, so... You know, there's too many people out there that never have to put their programming or their opinions to a test because there hasn't been a test. But the minute we have tests that have been vetted by the research, what you should do is take your outcomes, run them through those tests, and what you'll find is, you know, take, take Mike Boyle, for instance. Mike and I probably would train somebody um, somewhat different. But at the same time, I think, you could probably find higher than average movement screens coming out of Mike Boyle's gym, whether he movements those people or not. And I think before Mike even movement screen, he was generating bodies that moved better with the same level of performance than they others were. And I would basically say that same thing about some of the people that burned. I think some of these some of these guys we listen to now, they just they just intuitively got the movement message. And they never gave up movement to get performance. And so what we let's throw a test out there that honors the people who are doing it right, whether they're fans of the movement screen or not, and also shows people when they're doing it wrong so they can talk about it. Another another one that, that I always have to defend with the movement screen is is symmetry. So this this and again this came up with Fern, but not just Fern. Everyone says, "Oh, but the functional movement screen says everyone has to be symmetrical, and we're not symmetrical." And I always say to people, "No, it doesn't. What what the functional movement screen wants is proportional symmetry. What it doesn't want is gross asymmetry." And I always give the example of a two-two on like a hurdle step, for example. On one leg, you're almost a three, but not quite. On the other leg, you're just about a two, but you still have symmetrical or proportional symmetry. Can you just touch on that, Gray, uh, the, the, the symmetrical issue? Well, this, this whole thing uh, uh, came from some research we were reading in the 1980s uh, done in the military by some very, very brilliant researchers that were looking for those that predict injury. 
And one of the first things that came out of these massive studies, and I'm not talking 30 people now, okay? I'm talking massive studies is strength and flexibility were not good predictors of injury, but asymmetry was a good predictor of injury. So this is Gray Cook looking at some of the research because, you, you know, you still hear it today. Why does that guy keep pulling his hamstrings? Well, it's got to be a flexibility problem. Well, what, what happens? Measure the flexibility and the hamstring's good. Do you just persist in stretching or do you realize there may be another cause? The movement screen puts movement patterns into four categories. Uh, the first category should not be debated. If it hurts you to move, I, I responsibly think we should figure out why you're in pain than trying to simply ask to do more of it and hope it works itself out. So that's, 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 a, non, that's a non-negotiable for me. If you don't get that, we're, we're not, we don't have the same intent, so it's better that you continue doing what you do and do what I do. Um, the, the big debate in the movement screen comes in the score. You score a one on a movement, that is simply defined as failure to complete the pattern. A two on the movement screen is, is acceptable. It's not perfect, and you do have some degree of uh, uh, mobility and or motor control compromise, but for all practical purposes, you got through the majority of the pattern, you just weren't perfect doing it. We find that a, that a two is largely acceptable in many cases. A three means you did the pattern textbook, and, and at least of the things that we told you to look at, the person who did that pattern did it very well. So now let's go back and look five of the tests out of the seven of the tests in the movement screen, look at the left and right side of the body independently. If one of your movement patterns is dysfunctional, you can't even do it. But on the other side, you can do it perfectly or at least adequately, then that asymmetry speaks to me. Not simply because it's an asymmetry, because it's a dysfunction. You can't even do it on one side. I'm not talking about quality anymore. It is impossible for you to lunge on one side and keep your balance and keep even any modicum of alignment, but yet on the other side you can't. I don't know if we need putting or agility drills today until we flesh that out. But the other thing that I hear being debated that really doesn't need to be debated is a 2-3 asymmetry. The 2-3 the asymmetry means you're acceptable one side and nearly perfect on the other. Well, first of all, the movement screen that says there's any dysfunction here, there's simply an asymmetry. So these asymmetries are often going to be seen in, in golfers, in throwers, in kickers, and so the first thing we've got to do there is just see, all right, is that getting any worse? Let's just watch it. But the other thing is athletes have always been mildly asymmetrical. If you throw from an early age, you'll actually have bony remodeling of the throwing shoulder that will allow to have a little less external rotation, a little less internal rotation, a little more external rotation. But at no time should any of your movement patterns be dysfunctional, whether it's involved in an asymmetry or not. The only thing we do on a 2-3, acceptable on one side, perfect on the other, is we say proceed with caution. Because many people in weight rooms 
have very, very heavy symmetrical loads. So when we have a track athlete that, you know, has a slight asymmetry in their stride due to, say, hurdling or running around four curves, we say, proceed with caution. This athlete may always have a slight asymmetry as long as they do what they do, but is a heavy back squat really what they need? And if you think it is, let's really watch that heavy back squat because this person is going into a squat or a hand clean with an asymmetry. So when you see the torquing and twisting that we normally have to cut on these movements, it should be expected here. And so only employees off of them that don't make them deviate to that one side. So, you know, if you look at, if you look at our new app, our new scoring criteria now, the, the, you've got pain on the movement stream, you get a little medical symbol, a little caduceus. Look at that checked out. Let's hope it's nothing, but if it's something, you'll be glad you did. And if you see a one anywhere screen involved free or even without an asymmetry, you'll get a red light. And what we say is before you pursue loads and trying to enhance capacity, you need to get the quality of this pattern up simply so they do have a sound base so we can avoid inefficient micro trauma, uh, higher fatigability, poor alignment, proprioception that are accompanied when we have movement dysfunction and poor stability and mobility. You have a two, three asymmetry, you'll get a yellow light, proceed with caution. And if you have symmetrical twos and threes, you get a green light. If you have symmetrical twos, we may say, hey, don't let it get any lower than this. And if you have green lights, we'll say, don't let it get any, any lower than this. But you'd be surprised at how lenient we are on scoring interpretation. I'm very, very hard on scoring the screen correctly. But once we score the screen reliably and correctly, you would find that we're, we're stepping on a lot less programming than most. Uh, asymmetry is a natural phenomenon, and it's even you know accelerated by some sports. But if the asymmetry goes so far as to put the dysfunction, then it's a problem. Gray, what what would you say then? Another thing Vern brought up in our in our interview, and again, this it's not just Vern. I hear these these uh, false assumptions, and this this is what I always say that the functional movement screen is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts out there. But another thing I hear is that it, it only looks for dysfunction, and it stops people from training and getting strong. I mean, this is another one I just laugh. At. I'm like, where like you obviously have not read anything to do with the fms but just give your opinions on that that the fms only looks for dysfunction and and once once you have something dysfunctional on the move screen you can't do any sort of training well the uh the first thing i would say is if you look at the the popularity of the fms among nfl teams over the last 10 years you will find that used correctly you will find that many strength coaches actually embrace it and find it as a vital tool to actually give them a performance advantage. John Tareen, and, and I'm quoting him, the functional movement screen gives me a competitive advantage. It lets me know when a lift may actually be counterproductive and also reinforce when lifting is highly productive. Now, let me, let me run down some of my associations uh, with you. Um, Mike Gatone was with the USA Weightlifting for quite some time. As a matter of fact, when I became a level one weightlifting coach, he was my instructor. He has trained 
in the Olympic lifts as, as long as I can remember. He's, he's currently still very much training. He works for Gatorade now, but he's all over the place. And I, I find him uh, a well of knowledge when it comes to the Olympic lifts. He embraces the movement screen and realizes the movement screen makes better lifters, not worse lifters. Dan John, an amazing philosophical and practical strength coach. Pavel Sassoulin, a kettlebell instructor, much, much more. An unbelievably strong man that never gave up a bit of his functionality or flexibility to get there. Brett Jones, a, a competitive power lifter, a master kettlebell instructor, and one of the strongest guys I know pound for pound. Uh, and I could, I could keep going on and on. Guys, Brookfield, Jeff O'Connor, um, Dave Whitley, just some unbelievably fundamental, sound, strong and practical people who train others. And nowhere has the movement screen stepped on their programming or kept them from getting people strong. You know, but the thing is, the movement screen tells you the same thing I'll tell you if I'm not in the room. If somebody can't squat and you persist in loading that squat and over a month of loading squat doesn't get any better, my thing is I think they will prematurely plateau in their squat strength development. Whereas if you go through and open up those learned pathways, the mobility and stability that allows for a more well-aligned squat, uh, better movement altogether, I actually think they can up their squat performance. So at some point, don't coach quality in the weight room. Just make sure people have a minimum level of quality in the fundamental movements they have. That's, that's what I think is so, so ironic here is, you know, if you want me to tell you it's okay to have shitty form and train, I won't do that. If the only way you can control shitty form is Try to, try to talk somebody into better dorsiflexion when they have a restricted ankle. Go ahead. Just try to talk them into it. At some point, you do coach form, but you form on people that good form aren't doing good. Somebody can't even do good form at a body weight. Why are you asking for permission to load that movement? Because some of the best strength coaches I know realize how, how unbelievably inappropriate that question is. So if 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 I'm if the movement strain or my philosophy is restricting you from loading somebody who shouldn't otherwise be loaded, shame on you. Shame on you that I got to explain that to you. If if you think I'm unnecessarily stepping on program because I'm not a fan of strength conditioning, look at the people I associate with and look at the work that they do. I mean, it doesn't slow them down. They they view it as a competitive advantage. So. Gray, another one here is that, that the functional movement screen is just a cutty-cutter uh, seven tests. They don't mean anything. They're arbitrary. But I've often heard you say that, listen, you were a human long before you played American football, baseball, basketball, in Ireland here in the Gaelic Games. In, in England, it would be you know, soccer. They call it football. Uh, and you all, I've heard you say before, the screen is species-specific. It's not meant to be sports-specific. It, it's not meant to say that oh it's, it's not baseball specific it's not basketball specific can you just get into the screen is not sports specific it's species specific and that the seven tests aren't Cody cutter yeah yeah I mean uh, we don't use a different eye chart 
better, blood pressure cuff. We don't use different body comp machinery. We don't use different force plates. I could go on and on. We don't use different tools to analyze the healthy athlete. We may expect slightly better scores. Matter of fact, if you look at the, the, the visual acuity of uh, American pro baseball players, you will find that vision is a key component to being a good baseball player. And you will find attributes like body composition and marathoners, uh, you know, is, is a certain place. So, you know, we have these natural statistics that we use across the board. And we use them on athletes, too. And we just sometimes expect slightly higher marks with athletes. But that is, in essence, the movement screen. These fundamental movements are, are essential to healthy growth and development. And so what we want to first and foremost, athlete has not lost a fundamental or fundamental joint mobility or fundamental motor control. Because the one thing I can say about athlete is they're the world's best compensators. Let's, let's give them a reason not to compensate or let them only compensate when they have to in a sport-specific situation. Let's not, let's not make them compensate for something as simple as dorsiflexion or poor shoulder mobility or inappropriate abdominal control. So, you know, the, the movement screen is first and foremost really a metric to see are you ready to start doing loads and stresses on this system or would it be better to sure the system is ready for loads and stresses and it won't prematurely you know? um, so you know it is if, if you've got a soccer specific uh, intention or a pole or a golf specific then we've got some excellent tests out there as well as simply looking at somebody's ability to play and and, and looking at their statistics in the game. So we have many other things we can look at. But you'd be surprised how many times we look at that, try to fix a problem, go down in the movement screen and find out that this female triathlete can't even do a push-up. Okay? She's, she's competing for the Ironman in Kona, Hawaii. I didn't say she had, uh, uh, you know, a poor push-up, poor push-up. She's expecting her legs to run a marathon, her body to swim, you know, all this mileage or cycling ability to go 100 miles doesn't have the core stability to stabilize in one zip to push-up. So the, the FMS, first and foremost, is a red flag strategy. I'm simply trying to pull it, the red flags out of the athlete. You know, when, when a, a, a soccer player is only sleeping two hours a night or only getting half of their protein intake, these are red flags. These are non-debatable things. I think we'd all find that for sleep or, you know, uh, 50 grams of protein isn't going to cut it for this athlete. And that's all I'm saying when you can't do a push-up, uh, you know, with, with the movement screen. These are red flags. One kind of question or, or, or debate, again, that was kind of brought up in my interview with Vern, and, and it, this one kind of a, a annoys me again with people because, again, this kind of shows a bit of ignorance to that. They don't, again, fully understand the movement screen. He said the movement screen, you know, the, the whatever, actually leg raise where he says hamstring flexibility test. He says, I've seen this before. It means nothing. And then, like, 
again, if this was someone else, like whenever I teach the movement screen, I'm like, active straight leg raise is not a hamstring flexibility test. And I always, I always look around the room and say, does everyone understand this? We are looking at a hip separation pattern. Can this person stabilize their spine to bring their hip into hip flexion? And can the other hip stay in extension and in a neutral position? Can they separate the hips? Do they have authentic feed forward mechanism, proximal stability? I don't say all this in one go, but you get where I'm going. But just even, what what does the actor straight leg raise really tell us then, Gray? Because as Vern said in his in his interview with me, he thought it was a useless test, basically. It only looks at hamstring flexibility. It's isolated. It looks at joints. It doesn't look at a pattern. So explain us why is actor straight leg raise one of the most you know crucial things that your athletes needs to have? It is. Uh, you know, the, I don't know if you know about this. I'm sure you do know about this, but maybe some of your listeners don't. I would love for you to go online and look and see what Vladimir Yonda said about the upper and lower frost syndrome. We see it both in in highly sedentary people, and I'll give you a quick example of the lower cross syndrome. It's when the low back muscles become overstrong and very immobile, and and when the hip flexors become overstrong and the abdominals become weak, it's like everything reverses itself, and the stabilizers become and the prime movers try to become stabilizers. Yonda's, Yonda's brilliance identified these two syndromes in the upper and lower body. Every test in the functional movement screen is designed to confront those. Um, and so we look at the active straight leg raise test, the barriers to lifting that leg are a, a hip that will extend on one side, a hip that will flex on the other, a pelvis that can sort of negotiate the difference between the two, and a lumbar spine that's both stable enough to allow that to happen and mobile enough not in hyperlordosis or hyper. So there's there's a lot of things going on. The fact that when when Vern looks at that and only sees a hamstring test tells me when Vern reads a book he looks at the pictures and doesn't read the words. And you know if you know if you're if you're reading a girly magazine, that's probably a good thing to do. And if you're reading a textbook, it's probably not. <laughs> Look at a picture. you got to read the words under it because I've never tried to publish the movement screen without saying, listen, we're capturing pattern. And, uh, you know, this, this, is, this is the point of the map, um, you know, so. Great. Just, just uh, our, our final few questions. Um there was some research that came out a while back about the functional movement screen and some course ability research and of course the research wasn't wasn't great and I, I see this a lot of times too I, I have a friend who who you know he, he was like the movement screen the corrections don't work and I was like well how do you know you were applying the correct correction so and I find this is another thing that people do uh, you might get someone who actually is very good at screening but they haven't kind of gone on to level two or they haven't dwelled into the corrections and they might apply the wrong corrective strategies and then they feel that it's a whole waste of time they kind of get rid of the movement screen and so and i see this too with this core stability research they were saying that the fms didn't didn't wasn't a predictor of core stability or something like this and can you just touch on that research as well well you know what happens when you when you have a a test like that first of all we have to have a definition of core stability don't we exactly so the research the researchers must give us a defendable definition of core stability first. So now imagine the path we go down. If you think that the definition of core stability is side planking for seconds according to two studies, then really what you're saying is 
these two, two studies are the holy grail benchmark of core, and now we're going to compare the movement screen, which was designed to be another benchmark of core. So really what you're doing when you make a statement like that, unless you've got something that's, ex- that's as accepted as, say, blood pressure, um, you're going to be comparing a test to a test. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to basically identify what what is the definition of acceptable core stability and put that into a metric. And secondly, is that reliable? See, once again, people, the first thing you got to do with the movement screen is make sure that it's reliable. Well, the definition of core stability, in my opinion, is about as shaky as the definition of function. I walk in a room full of a bunch of people who do this shit for a living and can't get one definition. Now, if I walk in a room full of a bunch of Delta Airline pilots and say, what is the definition of wheels up? I'll get the definition. If I say, what's the definition of landing protocol? I'll get that. If I walk into the room with a bunch of therapists and strength coaches and athletic trainers and chiropractors and performance specialists and say, what's the definition of function? I'm not getting shit, but a bunch of people talk. So, you know, one of my big gripes is most of the stuff we debate isn't standardized yet. So it's very, very hard to look at one study and find out what they're trying to do uh, with that study. So, you know, my idea was let's standardize some of this and let's make sure if we're going to, you know, standardize it, let's start with some good, clean definitions. And one of the ways that I thought to try to define the word function may seem like a cop-out to some people, but it's, it's the cleanest way to do it. The the absence of dysfunction has to be the the starting definition of function. Now that makes us define dysfunction. Dysfunction to me is a movement standard below a certain accepted level. That accepted level should deal with two things. The ability to improve, adapt, and perform better, and the ability to, to not have elevated risk. So if you move just good enough to keep getting better and just good enough not to have elevated risk, my opinion, you're functional. You move below that, meaning you move so poor that you're not going to progress in performance and movement as good as the average person. Or if you're going to act risk for training more so than the average person, then that is dysfunction. So once we get... Once we get those definitions tighter, that's fine. So I think I think that the researchers had a very short scope of core stability, and often core stability gets tested as core strength. If we talk to most of the researchers about stabilizing muscles, we learn that most of the best stabilizers in the body stabilize the joints they cross by better timing and coordination, not by superior strength. Mm-hmm. And they do it at a a very small percentage of their maximal voluntary contraction. So if your idea of core stability is someone who maximal voluntary contraction, someone else of the core muscles, then actually what you're testing is core strength, not core stability. And so to, to look at core stability, what we would have to find someone who's got a standard for the absence of core dysfunction and see if the movement screen is associated with that. And then sort of our work our way into different levels 
say that to someone too that like the difference between stability and strength you know that you know, that stabilizer mechanism is that you know that authentic subconscious reflective feed forward mechanism and then you know that conscious high threshold is that that brace we need when we lift something heavy and you know when i heard you explain that and i, and I love when you always say you can't strengthen the stabilizer the issue is not a strength issue it's a timing issue and like when i first heard that for the first time it was just like a light bulb but the, the last the last few things great i want to touch on I, we said this on the phone when we spoke before I, I, you know, I brought up Charlie Weingroff and Charlie said listen you don't have to use the function move screen if you don't want to but for me it's the best thing that's out there currently he said but if, if you are going to look at movement quality your screen should be minimally, minimally cued it should be body weight and it should be modifiable and then he also said this it should respect these four areas neurodevelopmental kinesiology pain and motor control a high threshold strategy and finally regional interdependence so can you just touch in on that? If you want me to repeat that question again, because it's kind of long, I will. And but could you kind of, for the listeners, define why these four areas, so neurodevelopmental kinesiology, pain and motor control, high threshold strategy, and regional independence, why why are these areas so important as principles to the functional movement systems? Well, first of all, Charlie Charlie nailed it. And and if, if possible, I'm going to take the pain one off of the table first, because if someone's in pain, then the movement screen has done its job. Yeah. If you didn't, if, if someone came and said, I want to go hit that tractor tire with my sledgehammer and I want to learn the Turkish get up and I want you to make me run a, you know, uh, a faster 100 meter dash. If they come and ask you to do all these things for them, then at some point, let's make sure that they're not in pain in one of the movement patterns that you're going to train in your training. Because, you know, Kyle Kiesel uh, did, a, did a wonderful lecture on pain and motor control and talked about how when the body's in pain, the, the responses are, are inconsistent and unpredictable. And so my, my thing is, if you're in pain, the said principle either won't work, won't work well. So if your reason for training somebody is to tap into the natural biological said principle, specific adaptation to impose demand, it's not going to work. You're getting ready to waste a lot of training time when if you just invested a small fraction of that time in appropriate diagnosis and rehabilitation, we could actually help you get those performance goals in a much more sound platform. Number two, the neurodevelopmental perspective. That is the original software that the human being is programmed on. That is moving by feel moving without visual or verbal cueing. That is sort of that authentic movement platform that we introduce sports specificity to. If that platform is interrupted, then it's going to be harder to introduce sports specificity. However, when somebody goes overboard with sports specificity performance training, it's very easy to also that software. So not only should people enter into training with uncompromised original software, but they should also not let pursuit put a virus on that software. So simply getting twos on everything in the FMS tells me that all your original circuits are open, uncompromised, and your original hard and soft is optimized to do best, avoid injury, and adapt and learn. You know, 
And so that neurodevelopmental progression, the reason we pick these movements is they are less representative of specific sports, mm. but more a plan, a plan or foundation that all sports are. So in a, that's telling us don't train the hardware and software apart. The whole operating system is a system that grows the software and hardware together. As you, as you become a better jumper, thicker and more robust tendon, you get better myelination of the jumping movement program. The hardware and software grow together when we do the plyometrics, when we do the agility drills, when we do the functional training. At some point, if you throw a bunch of lifting and improve the specifics without undermining the fundamentals, you're, you're the world's best strength coach because that's all we need to do. Don't break the software or hardware. Don't don't insult which software system just because you want to load program off. The, the the system is built to hold both. Uh, so, and can you finally touch on a high threshold strategy and then regional interdependence? Yep, the the high threshold strategy is the opposite of the conversation we just had. When we make bench pressing become the goal, as opposed to a maintenance of shoulder mobility, then we will see a high threshold strategy. We'll see somebody who walks around with their traps in their ears or their shoulders rounded out. The, the best work I've seen on the explanation of high threshold strategy is, is, is Dr. Kyle Tiesel and Dr. Phil Whiskey when they look at the work of Hodges and some of the other brilliant spinal people, and we see that both previous injury that's not responsibly rehabilitated or inappropriate training create this splinting strategy as opposed to this authentic stabilization strategy. People lose their T-spine mobility not because their back gets tight, because they can't turn their abs off. Their abs are so busy fighting that one uh, hyperextension injury that you had on your spine that what's happening is an athlete is driving around with their parking brake on asking me, how do I build a bigger engine? How do I get more horsepower? And I'm like, the way you get more horsepower is you reach, take that friggin' parking brake off. That's how you get more horsepower. You're pushing on the wrong pedal. You know, you're, you got a foot on the brake and a foot on the gas. And, and what we're trying to, the high threshold strategy is what the human body does when you had trained inappropriately or out balance or you had trained an injury. So the high threat strategy is what happens when you ignore developments, but also with and so it is the result and so the first two. And so many athletes, the first thing we do is teach them how to let go of their ex doesn't mean we don't want a robust, well contracting abdominal group. We just want you, your trap when you're good if you can't turn them off, and your abs actually hurt you and you can't turn them off. And so the parking brake is what happens to a lot of athletes who train poorly. And then what we see is they, they intuitively realize that parking brake's on and so do their trainers. So they wind up getting all this unnecessary soft tissue work. They want very whole, but yet they're sending a program out of their brain that tells that quad, and abs and those traps to stay tight all the time. 
feel too tight or the areas that feel weak or even the areas that are painful. But unless we have a perspective that backs us away and lets us know that some of the areas that are going overlooked or we're not complaining about could be our biggest problem areas. So, so the regional interdependence is the scientific way of saying, you know, all this stuff's connected. A bad foot won't communicate with proprioception to a normal glute. If a normal glute doesn't signals, it'll seem like the glute's not firing, and it'll seem like you need a bunch of glute activation. But every time they stand on that leg, the glute's not even getting a signal because the ankle stiff and the foot is sloppy and the alignment is off. So regional interdependence is the scientific validation of functional training that we can't ignore one attribute go to where the area of complaint or concern or obvious is. We need to dig deeper to the underlying dysfunction. You know how many times in a, in a ACL athlete find the dorsiflexion restriction? And, and we can say, well, that dorsiflexion limitation is a result of the rehabilitation. If rehabilitation was so good, we should have picked that up. And there's a good chance that that dorsiflexion restriction was pre-existing. We see it happen in athletes a lot. Uh, restricted dorsiflexion promotes pronation in the foot and also valgus collapse in the knee. You know, so so my point is we, we see a lot of low-hanging fruit training populations that have been training inappropriately. Medial rotation in the hip, cortispine mobility, anterior shoulders, anterior high threshold strategy in the abs, and a lack of dorsiflexion in the ankle. And these are common recurring themes. I don't think that, that the species has devolved so much that they were born. I think the current training paradigm is overlooking these areas and, and doesn't have a remedy for it without, first of all, a metric that it's a problem. Great answer, Gray. <clears throat> this is the final the final question now, and to be honest, I think this one is a little bit of a, a, a more of a jab or a, you know, a more of a personal sort of one, but I mean, you can give whatever answer you want to this. Um, just another criticism I get all the time is, oh, the function movement screen, it's a fad. It fools people into buying plastic kits and bands. Uh, it's just, you know, they just basically say it's a fad and they're just making money off it. And that's basically it. It's just a money maker. It has no validity or integri integrity behind it. Just this is your chance now to air your, your response to that. Hey, the first, first two years that we, we taught movement screening workshops, we showed you how to make your own kit. What we found out is people basically said, can you just bring the wood for us or can you just do this? And then, you know, for two reasons. Uh, number one, um, we found out that if we're going to truly turn this into a, a, a vital metric, we need standardization. And number two, Lee and I have always been very vigilant to try to keep the cost low. But at some point, you know, I don't, I don't blame the stopwatch company for giving us a stopwatch. Nobody goes home and tries to to build your own stopwatch. Burn, none of Vern's books are free sources. Anytime you dispense information and or equipment, if there's going to be a certain level of quality, there involves a certain level of cost. But, you know, in the very beginning, we were so passionate about this movement message. We said, you know, it's not about buying anything. It's simply about having this different perspective. And as Lee and I grew up as businessmen, realized that we're never going to have research if we don't have equipment standardization, we realized that, and, you know, we worked very hard to keep those those prices low and uh, do those things, but I won't apologize for, for trying to dispense a quality product 
do that. So once again, um, I'll entertain you know quite a bit of criticism, but uh, I've I've uh, you know I've got some staying power here in the industry, and if it was if it was all about the money, there's a certain point when when it's almost not worth it uh, for us. And I'm I'm absolutely passionate about what we do. Uh, I like the fact that that you know things are standardized. But, the, the, the ability, the, the fact that we've been able to keep the courses low. And when you compare functional movement screen courses to a lot of the other workshops out there, you can tell that, you know, we pretty much over-deliver. We partnered up with Perform Better simply to keep, keep costs down and stuff like that. So, you know, Vern's book isn't free, and um, it's, it's not, you know, a free download. It's not free source. It's not a, a free ebook. If If you wake up and go through the time to write something and edit something and there's value in that something, then, then you know, I have no problem paying for that. You know, I don't expect my iPhone to be free. I appreciate the technology and, you know, I'll pay for it. You know, yeah. keep, keep pushing the technology and keep the prices uh, within reason and, and, and I'm, I'm in, you know. I, I, all I want to do is be able to trust the product. So um, I'm glad, I'm always glad you had a talk with Vern. Uh, because it, it allowed us to talk and allowed me to see that, you know, you almost didn't even need on this show. You, you have such a good perspective of it already that you're, you're a walking representative of the model. I know you do a lot more in your work in the movement screen, and it's, it's just a fundamental metric that you embrace so you can move on to the, to the real controversial topics about, all right, if this is, if this is a metric we're using, then what's the quickest way we can change it? See, yeah. if I could, if I could simply have my dream come true, if we all accept a standard, if it's the movement screen, that's great. If it's something else, but every generation we will accept a standard. You know, in one generation it was the compass, uh, in the next generation it's the GPS. But if we all have the same GPS, and I can get to the destination quicker without breaking the law, then I'm using the technology better than you. I'm using the technology in my car. I'm using the technology on the screen better than you are because I'm going to beat you to that destination every time. And, and it's really refreshing because I'm using the same equipment. I'm just using it more creatively and artistically and efficiently. So, you know, my whole passion is if we could all agree on fundamental metrics about training, like the movement screen or certain performance testing, then we could all just go get the equipment we like and the programming we like and say, you know what? Go to our dungeon. We're going to train a bunch of people and we're all going to the athletes at the end of this metric that still got to do stuff but don't have any deficiencies. Mm-hmm. And if we could get there, we could truly uncrack some of the better training paradigms. But if everybody with a training system has tests that validates their own system, then we're all just refing our own ballgame and we'll never... So if if I had to basically take back one of my contributions, my contribution in exercise or my contribution with a movement screen, I would pull the exercise back and say, just accept the movement screen. I'm pretty sure you'll wind up with a lot of cool, innovative stuff. And I think you might actually find out that chopping and lifting and Turkish get-ups and single-leg deadlifts are pretty freaking money when you look at stuff through the same filter I'm looking through it. So. Uh, and this this is the, the final question. This is actually one one myself. I currently I'm on the uh, the Atlas Performance Phase Two mentorship, and actually we were just doing the functional movement screen today. It's one question I've always wanted to ask you personally. Now, and I've heard I've heard some explanations as to why, but 
with regards to screening grey what is your take on shoes like should should the person wear the shoe all the time the argument is that it makes it nevada because they can wear a different shoe i've also heard they should wear a shoe because if they wear an orthotic if it's a shoe that they train in but other coaches think that it's more valid to try to, to screen people in their barefoot or, or in a sock or something that's going to be valid time after time so here's a chance just to clear that up for people yeah i think that's first of all that's that's a that's a question uh, and it and it and it deserves a, a very thorough answer. The my first impression is we should train in the shoe that you do your conditioning and or cross training in. So I realize a a turf cleat or a golf shoe or uh, a ski boot. <laughs> these are these are inappropriate and impractical. But we must realize that golfers and skiers and football players and track athletes. They usually do their lifting and their jump rope and their agility work in a shoe that's more conducive, say, to a gym floor or artificial turf environment. So I would say that the, I want to see you screen in the shoe that you would cross-train in, which says a few things. First of all, I'm thinking or hoping that you've learned a little bit about footwear. At least your cross-training shoe is more of a minimalist shoe with some good intrinsic support not a big old uh, shoe with a cushioned heel for linear straight straight distance running. So that being said, the shoe that you're going to lift in, but not a lifting shoe, uh, the shoe that you're going to do agility work in, to me is the most appropriate thing because it's where your screen is going to meet the workout. And so if 50 to 75% of your training is done in a shoe that's not the one you compete in, then that's the shoe I want to see you go through a movement screen in. If you are in a sport where you're actually barefoot, once again, unless 90% of your training is barefoot, and I know, you know gymnasts and swimmers have a huge amount of barefoot training. However, when they do lift, when they do do their plyometric and or agility work or their terrestrial gym training or whatever, once again, that's the piece of footwear, the, what you're going to wear when you do your deadlifts and your jump rope and your farmer's carry and stuff like that. That's what I'd like to see. So, you know, I know people will differ with me. My original intent was where, where your movement screen is going to meet your workout, that's what I'd like on your feet. Where your movement screen meets your sport, if, if 90% of your MMA training is barefoot, then I pretty much think we got a movement screen there. And let's talk about it. I don't, let's talk about how many to test a footwear, footwear actually comes into play. Shoulder mobility, I don't think footwear comes into play. Active straight leg raise, I don't think footwear comes into play. Um, push up rotary stability, footwear doesn't really come into play. So really we're only talking about three tests, the squat, the hurdle step, and the lunge. Now, the, the squat, get an advantage the bigger the heel lift is in your shoe but once again we said was shoe and if it's a minimalist shoe that has almost a zero four millimeter rise then your toe is getting lifted almost as much so it's almost a non-issue I, I i wear you know a lot of minimalist shoes so you know getting on the the, the board potting with a minimalist shoe means your toe is lifted almost as much as your heel but it's almost a non-issue the uh, lunge, definitely the, the shoe is giving you more stability than so here. And then the hurdle step and then the squat, here's where it's 
could make a difference. But if you've already been with an orthotic and you're using that orthotic when you train and when you compete like you're hopefully supposed to, then I don't think we should worry about screening you without your orthotic. However, as a therapist, when I put somebody in an orthotic, one of the first things I want to see is if that orthotic is absolutely necessary, then you should have a slightly better uh, hurdle step, lunge, or squat. That's one of the ways I validated the orthotic approach, or not in many cases. I might think you need an orthotic, but if it gives you no advantage in the screen, then the only other place I have to see if it gives you advantage is in maybe a full body weight motion control, like a run. So even though the orthotic may not give you an advantage in the screen, if it does give you a motion control advantage in, in a greater than one body weight load, then I can still justify it. Um, if it doesn't give you an advantage in, in a, a one or more body weight load, then maybe I'm just trying to sell you an orthotic. And, um, you know, so that's, that's where I go with that. So I got no problem screening barefoot, but there, there are some things that the shoe is going to do for you in training that I would like to have sort of an appraisal on as well. So that's why I've always said, you know, you're welcome to screen someone barefoot, but if they're not going to do some of their heaviest loads, and when I say load, I'm not just talking about a weightlifter or a hand clean, I'm talking about a box jump or agility work. If those kind of acceleration, deceleration, or total tension loads are going to be done in a minimalist, uh, very stable shoe, let's go ahead and do the movement screen there too. And, uh, Great Cook, that is my final question and we have gone 20 minutes or almost 20 minutes over our one hour mark. Uh, I absolutely just want to say thank you so much again for taking the time. Um, you know, you're an absolute gentleman, an absolute gent. Um, I really, really appreciate you coming on and, and, you know, being very fair to Vern in your reply to his criticisms um, and also giving a chance for the listeners to, to get your point of view across. So from me and, and also from my listeners I, I thank you very much and um, hopefully we'll have you on again soon um, is there anything else you want to you wanna sign off with? Um, the only thing is uh, I, don't, I don't want anybody listening to this uh, not to think that I don't have a world of respect for Byrne and what he's contributed I think we, if anything we've got some semantic problems, some communication yeah. problems but I, I want the people out there who, who are fans of my work to listen to the way I handled this I don't have to handle this by throwing Vern under the bus, and neither did Robbie. I think Robbie and I handled this in a very high class, very over-delivery way. If you can't build a case for your philosophy without taking somebody else out, you don't have a strong enough case. I think uh, we both operate under that, and that's why I consider this a great opportunity. So don't just listen to what we said about the movement screen. Look how we handle the topic that's emotionally charged and we went back to logic systems and fundamentals and if and if, if you can defend the movement screen by telling people to go look at the principles first and see if they agree with the principles and make sure that you're talking to somebody who has the same principles as you do because once again if you're not dealing with somebody that has the same principles with you do you're not they're not ready to hear what else you've got to say but you have different belief systems so I always start to say, if you like my principles, then please accept my humble metrics and systems for honoring those principles. If you don't like my principles, we have nothing more to 
studied it, it's nothing's more disheartening than interviewed by somebody who just has you on because you're popular and not somebody who's actually, you know, studied studied the material first so they can ask a compelling question to other people who've studied it. So I, I thank you for that. No problem at all, Gray. It's, it's uh, once again, the pleasure's all mine. You've been a, an absolutely tremendous influence on me and many, many other people and your work is greatly appreciated and again I just want to say as well for me Vern has also been a huge influence and again this isn't an attack on Vern I just as, as anyone knows who's listened to my podcast I just I just feel there's so much as Gray said there's semantic issues there's just misinterpretations false assumptions and, and it just leads to this criticism and this friction between people that if we all were in one big room and we had a big conversation we would agree on 99% of everything generally so Gray uh, just hang on for a second after I wrap up the show and I'll just say goodbye to you uh, so guys that's it for today's podcast um, really great interview Stay, uh, stay tuned in, stay down on the podcast and thanks for all your support so until next time guys, take care, be well and I'll talk to you soon Thank you.